Welcome to Antitrust Code by Concurrences. Concurrences is the leading antitrust database with over 30,000 articles on competition law. Concurrences is also the largest network of antitrust experts with lawyers, economists, enforcers, and academics in 85 countries. By listening to this podcast, you will learn the fundamentals of competition law and hear about the latest antitrust news thanks to our guests, the best experts in the antitrust world. So welcome to the uh, panel on merger control and FDI. I'm Neil Dryden. I'm co-head of Compass Lexicon in EMEA, and I work on all types of competition case, including uh, global mergers. Um, my co-moderator is Lee Oliver, who's a partner in the antitrust group of Clifford Chance based in uh, Washington, DC. And then our distinguished panel is Rima Aleli from Microsoft Corporate Vice President and Deputy General Counsel and uh, lead of the competition law group. Uh, Vijay Iyer, um, Senior Vice President, Associate General Counsel and Corporate Secretary at Booking Holdings Inc. Both obviously with incredible recent stories to tell about merger control. Um, and then joining us remotely, Aditi Mehta from the DOJ, Assistant Chief in the Economic Litigation Section, and Anjali Patel, um, Council for Antitrust and Strategic Projects at Verizon. So just before I hand over to Lee, uh, our idea is to organize this uh, panel in three parts. In the first part, we're going to look at assessing theories of harm in digital mergers. And then in the second part, we're going to move into the uh, key hot topic of international alignment when multiple agencies are looking at the same merger and then we're going to uh, conclude on the FDI topic. So with that, I'll hand over to Lee. Thanks, Neil. Um, and thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Um, so I'm going to start with uh, the first topic here, which is like thinking about the different theories of harm that are being applied to digital mergers today across jurisdictions. I think it's fair to say that uh, digital markets are garnering significant scrutiny from the global competition agencies. Um, and, and I'm not going to recount sort of the key decisions that, or key cases, I think, that um, we saw come out over the last year, because um, I think there's some nice teeing up of that that was done in earlier discussions and the keynote. Um, but I do want to just sort of refresh that I think we're going to focus on the theories of harm that were somewhat novel um, or sort of pushed the boundaries a little bit. Um, with respect to, for example, Microsoft Activision, we saw the EC and CMA look at effects in a nascent market for cloud gaming, um, while the US applied a somewhat more traditional vertical analysis with respect to foreclosure in um, console gaming. Then we saw the case Meta within. I don't think that one was mentioned previously, but that was here just, just out here, um, I think earlier last year, um, where we saw the FTC take a challenge, which was, I think, could be considered a reverse killer acquisition with respect to virtual reality, a virtual reality fitness app acquisition by Meta. Um, and then um, we, of course, have, and BJ so kind to be here, um, the discussion about the ecosystem effects in digital markets with the recent prohibition of booking holdings, e-travel-i um, transaction. So, 
With that, I think we understand that enforcers and courts are um, facing questions about how to apply antitrust and competition law to new and continuously evolving digital and tech markets. At the same time, in-house counsel are asked to and tasked with predicting how the law is going to impact deals as they come before them um, from their business development, corporate development teams, and trying to predict how these new theories are going to or potentially going to impact um, the uh, deals that are being looked at and, and entered into, and how do they mitigate those risks and, and deal with those challenges. So we want to deal with those issues in this panel a bit. Um, and I'm going to start by asking Rima um, to talk to us about, obviously, in, in the Microsoft Activision case, we don't need to relitigate it. You were already no. successful. <laughs> um, but we saw the enforcers grappling with the various issues and come up with actually different theories in different jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. um, I'm obviously you. Microsoft took issue with the way that um, they were thinking and analyzing the transaction and its effects. I'm curious to know from you, like, where do you think the fundamental disagreements were? Was it on the theories of harm? Was it on the facts? Or was it obviously a combination of, of those things? Or, or was it on the thresholds, perhaps, the enforcement agencies were applying, maybe lowering the bar or the thresholds that they think present problems or predict effects? I think really what you just said at the end is really where I think the fundamental disagreement was because um, setting you know let's let's set aside kind of the FTC which you know we're still in in litigation with but you know I think you saw between um, the European Commission and the UK a very similar thinking about the transaction a very similar concern around what is going to happen um, with respect to cloud gaming and would the acquisition of this set of you know this popular catalog of games ultimately catapult Microsoft into kind of a leading position on a platform that was ultimately going to become influential or meaningful in the video game space. Um, and I think our position or our thought was we didn't think that was really a significant threat. Um, cloud gaming was a very, very small portion of the market, perhaps maybe less than 1%. And you know there were some real what we thought were sort of technical and economic challenges and realities about how this market was going to develop in the foreseeable future. Um, and a belief that the, the Activision catalog of games wasn't really meaningful for that. But I think what we've seen as the regulatory environment has shifted really over the last two years when it comes to digital markets and frankly when it comes to large technology companies is those unknowns, whereas you know, perhaps in the past might have been resolved in favor of letting the deal go through, um, we don't get that presumption anymore. Uh, and so we were really asked by the regulators, okay, well, if you don't, you know, let's put some guardrails in place uh, in order to make sure that you know, what we're worried about doesn't happen. Um, and then I think what you saw between the European Commission and between the CMA was just a different approach to what kinds of remedies would be sufficient. Um, and that's sort of where kind of some of the challenges came in trying to navigate how do we find a remedy that's going to ultimately satisfy everybody. Yeah, I definitely think we want to explore that <laughs> issue a little bit further. Um, uh, but let me go to Vijay next, and I'm, I'm curious to talk about, obviously, the Booking eTraveli case. Um, there, I mean, actually, we weren't dealing with nascent markets. We were dealing with OTAs in hotels and um, in airlines. Um, tickets, and it was, I mean, I think we are all sort of reading that decision thinking, wow, 
did we expect an ecosystem case, um, um, and particularly this one to be that case? So curious to know sort of like your perspective on, um, on where it was, that, was it the theory that was actually somewhat surprising, or was it the facts that you think they just didn't quite, quite right? Well, thanks, Liam. It's great to be here. Um, you know, so I, I take what the vice president said, and I, I thought she told a great story, but in a little bit, I, I felt like Rip Van Winkle that we had, when we started the transaction, gotten some advice that we thought the world was looking one way, but then but two years later, we were faced with these novel theories of harm, and I think I mm -hmm. echo what Rima said, it was a very different environment. The presumption was sort of against, I think you phrased that mm -hmm. very well. And over the course of the two years we spent negotiating trying to get the deal through, there was a sea change, and it's like we had woken up to that new world. Um, I will want to you know, say a couple of things. I mean, one, our transaction, we submitted it to the CMA and were cleared within eight months after a sort of robust review, looked at it, had good dialogue, several meetings with them. They cleared it. The FTC, DOJ declined to take action twice when we filed with them. We filed with Ukraine and some other authorities, and it was cleared in every case. So fundamentally, I, I don't think that there was a different set of facts, per se, that was, that was shown to different people. Um, but the European Commission took a, took a different view. And I, I do think it comes back to what Rima said. And the Vice President said it this morning. And I thought she said an interesting thing. She said, there was a significant enough impact. And the, I think a lot of things lies in what is the enough impact in that threshold. And that, I think, has dramatically shifted from what we might have expected as company counsel before to what the view may be from regulatory authorities. I would just say one other thing, a sort of a thought experiment, and I, I know I would take a little risk doing this, but <laughs> how many people in the room have booked travel online for fun, not for just coming here, but for fun, <laughs> you know, uh, to fly somewhere and book a hotel? Let me know. Okay, great. And how many of you all, when you did that, when you were planning your trip and booking it, booked your flight and your hotel at the same time? see one, two, three. three. I count three, maybe the four. Yeah. Okay. That sort of comports with actually like what our data shows, <laughs> which is that a very few number of people actually book their flight and then immediately in that same session or within, you know, a short period of time are like, I gotta book my hotel right now. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, and the people who raise their hand can probably explain to you why they do, but booking a flight is a is inherently sort of a tragic process, unfortunately. <laughs> Particularly like an international flight. You know, you've got to, it's, you're traveling with family, you've got to put in everybody's name and their passport number, and if you put the wrong piece of information in, it's hell to go and change it back and picking seats. And by the time you're done with it, you just want to close your laptop and go get a drink. You don't want to say, I need to be confronted with 100 options and decide right now, like, am I staying at the Four Seasons? Am I going to do a, an alternative accommodation? Do I want to go look on Airbnb? Do I want to, you know, all of these things. You just want to, like, wait and then be like, oh, as it gets closer, booking a hotel for most people on vacation is pretty exciting. Like, hey, like, where, where, where are we going to stay? What are we going to see? What are we going to do? Are we going to do like a five-star thing? Are we going to do like a hostel? Are we going to do like a, a house, rent it with friends? And then you get up and it's like an exciting adventure. And you restart the search process and you're trying to, you know, find yourself a new deal. Fundamentally, that's how, you know, we view all our data suggests. That's how people operate. And, you know, for years, so Booking Holdings owns, operates a number of, services. So Booking.com, which is well known in Europe, Priceline, Kayak, 
OpenTable, Agoda in Asia. You know, our different businesses have had different models and, and we've operated them you know, mostly independently over the years. Priceline for people in the US, that was the original, one of the dot-com heroes, William Shatner, name your own price. They had for traditionally offered flights and hotels and cars and tried to sell you packages and other things. On the other hand, Booking.com was founded in Amsterdam. We never offered anything except accommodations for the longest period of time. And we did fine. It was one of the most successful online travel businesses in the world. If you look at Airbnb, they started out and they fo their core focus is on just offering accommodations, even primarily just even within that homes, um, which you know, we do think are in the same market as ours, but like, that's what they focus upon. So it was striking to wrap up this long-winded thing, so apologies, but to think that with the success of these single vertical businesses that we were suddenly confronted with the idea that no, you have to have, uh, if you have flights and, and accommodations in the same thing, you're suddenly gonna form this walled garden ecosystem that nobody can escape from. Because literally the, the lived reality of people in this room doesn't suggest that in the least. I think, it, I mean, I, I, right, it goes to whether that, so then that to me is a, a difference in how the facts are that you see them versus how the commission saw them, right? So I think that's really answers that question, although the theory is quite, novel in itself too, yeah. I have to say, Vijay, your, your survey didn't uh, abide by any of the good practice guidelines for how to do a survey. I know. Survey, right? <laughs> I was like try asking the person to try on the glove, yeah. and I think, <laughs> but, but I took a chance. But in spite of that, it was surprisingly persuasive, so well done. Um, so we've been discussing theories of harm in uh, two specific cases, um, but what we'd like to do now is just uh, zoom out a little bit and look at the bigger picture, uh, and really the question of overall merger regime predictability. So mm -hmm. let's forget about the past cases, let's think about the hypothetical next case. How easy is it going to be to predict how it's going to be assessed? And I think we've heard uh, some of the sources of unpredictability in recent times, new theories of harm, um, maybe old concepts being applied, but in conditions of greater uncertainty um, different intervention thresholds and et cetera. Um, so the question that we want to address now really is whether, okay, we've moved into arguably a bit of a new regime, but is that new regime predictable uh, to, to, to a great enough extent? And the agencies might point to their guidelines. So the CMA can point to its new murder assessment guidelines in 2021, which tackled many of these topics. And the DOJ can point to its final merger guidelines released last month also aiming to kind of codify new thinking and provide something of a roadmap. So if I can turn now to Aditi to give us an agency perspective, um, do, you do you recognize the predictability problem? Do you think it's solved by the new merger guidelines? And what is it within the new merger guidelines that you think is going to be most helpful to companies that are trying to kind of assess how their, how their next merger is going to be looked at? Yeah, so I think um, the, what's notable about the new guidelines is that they articulate a more comprehensive set of theories under which we can analyze mergers, and I think several of them apply to digital mergers. Um, so the new guidelines include a robust discussion of theories only briefly discussed or not at all discussed in the previous guidelines. So one example is that the new guidelines there's a thorough discussion of mergers that involve a multi-sided platform, um, and so the guidelines um, 
so the guidelines include guidance on mergers that can affect competition for, on, or to displace the platform. So for, for example, when thinking about competition for a platform, the new guidelines not only discuss mergers where a dominant platform acquires a rival platform, but also mergers where the dominant firm acquires a complementary product that may weaken rival platforms, for example, by depriving rivals of network effects or increases increased switching costs. So that's one example, but you know there are other theories where there's a more explicit discussion that can be important in digital mergers, um, including related to potential competition, entrenchment, and serial acquisitions. So I, I think that helps. Um, another thing related to digital mergers is that the new guidelines are more comprehensive in their discussion of dimensions of competition beyond price. Um, so throughout the guidelines, you'll see discussion of innovation and quality that can be important in some digital markets um, where price may not be the most significant way of attracting customers. So I think I think that's all helpful. Um, that's, that's, that's very helpful. Can, can I turn now to Anjali to get a, a kind of in-house perspective? What, what do you make of the new guidelines? Are, are they giving an effective roadmap or are they giving something more like an open-ended list of uh, all sorts of views of harm that are very hard for you then to, to really navigate? Thanks so much, Neil. And, and hi, everybody. Thank you for, um, for, for having us. I, I wish I could be there in person. Um, you know, Neil, I think used a word just a, a few minutes ago that I, I've been thinking of in context of these guidelines as well, which is, is the word codify. I think that the new merger guidelines really codify or, or formalize um, to some extent what the agencies have been doing and looking at in recent years. Um, and I think many of us antitrust practitioners have been taking those theories into consideration and, and under advisement, you know, as we've been advising over the, the, the past couple of years. So, you know, I, I think that the new merger guidelines don't necessarily change the approach so much. I think, Aditi, you're, you're exactly right. I, I think what it does is provide really good insight and, and this kind of view into how the agencies are um, thinking about these theories in more detail than I think we've been able to see before and, and some more insight that we've, um, that, than we've gotten before. Um, I think in connection with that, um, and, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit more, Neil and Lee, in the, the next session, the next uh, the next part. But I think this makes early assessment of, of um, deals all the more important, right? You know, as as deals are being considered and at the the um, at the in-house uh, level, I, I think it really makes um, taking a look at antitrust and, and, and kicking the tires on antitrust all the more. And, and I think we've got now with the, the, at least the U.S. merger guidelines some, some good tools to, to assess how the agencies might look at it. That's very helpful. Yeah, so Anjali, I want to follow up and get your take on, on, I guess we could argue back and forth, like, did the new merger guidelines create predictability? Do they really sort of um, satisfy us in that regard? Do the CMA guidelines do that? Or do we feel feel like there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of how they're going to be applied. I mean, here in the US, we yes, there are guidelines for the agencies, but they are not necessarily adopted by the courts. And so there's still that sort of uncertainty in my mind about, um, I, guess, I guess you have the predictability of, well, this is the way the agency will look at it. Um, but I'm curious to know whether you think that the uncertainty, if it still exists in some fashion, is, causing, has caused, is likely to cause sort of 
slowing of M&A or other sort of effects on M&A and transactions, and maybe not just M&A, but collaborations and things of that nature, which would also kind of get swept in under the guidelines? Yeah, that, that's a really good question, Lee. I, you know, I don't think so, and I, I don't necessarily think that it'll cause a, a reduction in M&A. I think deals are an important part of business, and I think they're going to continue to happen. I think um, what what we'll see, and I think one of the things that, that should be happening, and I think has been happening and, and will continue to happen, is um, this early assessment, right? You know, making sure that as deals are being considered, they're, they're, they're um, the the theories and the, the um, information that's in the guidelines is being assessed and then applied through um, these, these early uh, assessment phases. But, but Rima, BJ, I appreciate your thoughts as well. I don't know if you've Yeah, I definitely have some thoughts. I have some thoughts too, yeah. <laughs> oh, well then we please. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, look, I, I think it goes to, and Anjali touched upon this, like application, and you were saying this too, like application is probably more important than like putting out the piece of paper. It's like, how is it gonna be applied? And there's, I think, a lot of uncertainty around that. And then I think uh, it will absolutely have an impact on um, our ability to do M&A. I think buyers generally are gonna look at this and say, well, what are we signing up for now? If you're signing up for a two-year period mm -hmm. or two-year plus, you gotta start thinking about a lot of things in terms of ticking fees, you know, what's your, you, more probability of paying break fees, longer distraction for the business, an enormously time consuming and, and expensive regulatory process with uncertain chance of success. Do you even wanna do these deals now as a strategic buyer? On the sell side, um, same thing. Like, do you now start devaluing strategic options that maybe would be potentially better for your business or for you as a, you know, founder seller or somebody who's on the inside of the business in favor of a private equity or some other buyer because there's a lot more certainty that that's gonna get done and get done sooner and you can realize value. So we're gonna create, I think, unintended, that's not to say people won't do deals, as Andrea yeah. said. If you have a, if you have a, a creative deal, you're, you're probably gonna be interested in it, but it will impact your price and ability to consummate those deals and that will, I think, we will absolutely see knock-on effects of that. Compo compound that with multiple regimes that you have to like you have to flip the coin 10 times and come up heads every time that creates you know further uncertainty as they all sort of converge around these nascent theories or new theories and so i probably couldn't have said it better <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do want to double down though on that last point because i think it's important i mean merger review if, if you are a global company trying to do a deal in a global environment that is gonna require filings in multiple jurisdictions, it has become not just a project that's complicated, it's become a project that's complex, mm -hmm. right? And that complexity is very difficult to manage um, and predict, you know, if I succeed here, what is it gonna mean here? What's it gonna mean here? And I think as, as Alex was saying on the panel before, you know, you've got regulators who are much more muscular, looking how they work together, how they achieve outcomes. You know, it, it is very hard to kind of predict and give the business any kind of comfort that if we make this investment over a two, two and a half year process, we're gonna get a positive outcome and is that worthwhile? Um, and so maybe it affects a certain class of deals, mm -hmm. um, maybe not others, but I think it's important to not just be, at least we aren't just thinking about it in the context of you know, how do the U.S. merger guidelines help us? It's really this environment worldwide that we are confronting and need to be thinking about. 
Yeah, so those, those answers make me sort of think of uh, going back to what was said earlier. There was a point made earlier that economists aren't very good at measuring the harm from <laughs> innovation that doesn't happen due to anti-competitive <laughs> practices. We, we, we probably have a second huge measurement problem, which is I don't think we're, we're very good at measuring the costs of M&A activity that isn't anti-competitive that doesn't happen because of these risks. And to some or extent, that gets delayed, or, right? Or yeah. that gets delayed. And, and the right, answer, the right regime should depend on balancing these two things, but they're two things that <laughs> no one is really able to measure. Um, so I think that gives us a very nice uh, segue into the, into the next topic, which is um, the issue of um, international alignment, so global mergers that are assessed by more than one uh, authority. And, uh, that's been very nicely set up. This is obviously an extremely hot topic in global merger control uh, for at least three underlying reasons that I think have been alluded to already. Um, there are more digital mergers where the markets are global and remedies are global or at least supranational. Um, there are more agencies looking at those global deals, including since Brexit, the CMA, but also other significant agencies around the world. And thirdly, as we were just hearing, intervention rates against those mergers are increasing, and there's uncertainty about the intervention uh, methods, meaning that the decisions of different agencies are not perfectly correlated. Add all of those things together, global markets, more regulars, regulators looking at the same markets, reaching their own conclusions, and high intervention rates that are not perfectly correlated with each other, um, means you can end up in a situation where uh, one agency is effectively vetoing the deal even if all the others are clearing it, and that can be happening with some regularity. I think, Vijay, that's your point about tossing a coin and needing it to come up heads ten times. Um, so that's kind of the world that we're in for at least some deals. Um, and we've, we've seen that obviously in Booking e Traveli and uh, uh, nearly happening in Microsoft Activision, you could say. Um, if, if you allow me just a quick digression before we get into, go back to the panel, I've been, you know, I'm an economist, so I like to formalize things. So this, uh, tossing the coin 10 times, I've been kind of modeling it, you know, exactly that and thinking, uh, just thinking about sort of the, uh, the, the underlying logic of um, multi, multiple agencies looking at one deal. And you know, just to give you a flavor of the kind of insights from that, which are kind of obvious in a way, but if one agency is looking at a global deal and the agency knows that other agencies are looking at that deal as well, it should optimally be blocking only if it's more sure that its own assessment that the merger is anti-competitive is correct. Because it's, inverted commas, vote to block is only going to matter when all the other agencies clear. Mm -hmm. And that might be because it's spotted a problem that everybody else missed, but it can also be because it's making the, the wrong assessment, mm -hmm. a, a, a false prohibition assessment. So the fact of the other agencies looking at the deal should be leading the agencies to kind of moder you know, moderate their thresholds of certainty before they go as far as prohibiting. I'm pretty sure the agencies, including those in the room, might tell me that that is way outside of what the statutory <laughs> framework allows for, or at least it's very difficult to fit into the statutory framework. And uh, I'm not making a statement that that's how the world should work, but I think it's like a helpful way of having a contrast to perhaps how the world, the way the world does work, which is my impression that an agency might not hesitate, in fact, to veto a deal if it, if it thinks its own assessment has led it to that position. 
So that's sort of the little lead into this topic of international alignment. What, what we'd like to do now is just explore some implications around this. So uh, can, can I bring it back to Aditi and the question of um, just the extent of divergence between agencies? Um, and we'd be interested, I'm sure, to understand your perception of the degree of difference in approach between US and non-US agencies, the extent of which that has the potential to lead to different outcomes, and what you're really going to, what you would sort of attribute any, any divergence to, where, where, is it, where, where would it be coming from? Yeah, um, so, you know, there are differences in the legal structure and tools at the different agencies. But, you know, in my experience, the economic analysis of mergers is quite similar across the different agencies. Um, so when I talk to economists at these other agencies, we're often considering the same some, or similar theories of harm um, and using the same economic framework. Um, and so because of that, I, I find that we're often emphasizing the same industry characteristics and market facts when evaluating the mergers. So, um, you know, I think it, it can obviously be the case that the, there's different there's different factors when you're evaluating a merger and different agencies may put different weights on these different factors. Um, and there, there are gonna be some facts that are specific to different geographies. Um, but, you know, I think from an economist perspective, the analysis tends to be pretty similar across the agencies. and. I, I think when you're thinking about what your economists should present in front of the agencies, it's probably pretty similar um, or using similar um, analysis across the different agencies. So, so I think, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's hard to. Yeah, no, no, that, that's super, I mean, I think that's actually helpful. So what we're saying, what you're saying is actually there's, on the economic analysis, there should be pretty good alignment mm -hmm. across the jurisdictions. I don't think that's yeah. always the case on maybe some of the legal and factual analysis, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, <clears throat> Vijay, obviously you saw that. Um, I was curious to sort of get your take on, um, you know, what is it that you think created that uh, divergence for you all. I mean, you referenced that you had cleared eight jurisdictions, I think it was, before you got the prohibition. So maybe you can give us some insights into what were the, I'm sure you had investigations, what were the issues they were asking about? How were you able to satisfy those eight other agencies with um, maybe with the facts or the, the analysis? Yeah, we, I mean, um, it, so, I aligned a bit with what Aditi said, which is that I, I don't think we were going and showing a whole different presentation generally. I think we did have market-specific things as to you know, what was in the US or the UK or whatever have you. Um, I, I wish I could explain the difference, but to, to say, like, I mean, with the CMA and the EC, fundamentally, outside of saying one is the UK market-focused and one was CMA, this uh, uh, EC, Fundamentally, the CMA assessed a very similar thing as to what the EC ultimately concluded upon, which is that this ecosystem and network effects and other things. And we had a whole discussion about that. And you know, from our perspective, from a data-driven perspective, that you know that dog didn't hunt. Uh, so, like, that was what we were basically trying to intimate and the rationale for doing the deal and the rationale upon which you know we our board had approved the deal and that we what we wanted to do and talk to investors about had very little to do with the idea of whether you call it ecosystem or whatever have you of like you know taking 
people who want to buy flights and immediately trying to sell them a hotel. We wanted to, to invest in sort of uh, this new vertical, which we very separate from the hotel vertical and sort of a profitable growing business that we thought was a good venture and off, offer different things to our customers who, you know, if you come to book a hotel, maybe you'd be interested in booking a flight, not necessarily at the same time as the room demonstrated, but it may be something that you could be interested in doing. So in a sense, we would had a little bit of a groundhog day effect. We'd go and we'd explain the thing and you could fly to London and have one audience and then you'd fly to Brussels and have another audience, but ultimately, um, why did they result in different outcomes? You know, that is maybe for people smarter than I to, to discern. I mean, I, I will say, uh, Executive Vice President was very transparent with us and she even said it today, you know, novel theory of harm is something that they were looking to experiment with and that was something, you know, in our discussions, they were sort of open about that. And, you know, I think that's where we're headed. I mean, we thought we were clearly in a non-horizontal merger. Mm -hmm. Instead, we were told like hybrid, hybrid uh, something or other. It's still difficult for me to discern what exactly that is. That's where I think that predictability again comes back. It's, you can have the best guidelines, but if the application of those guidelines is sort of brought to you after the fact and you're in the midst of the process, you can't go and you know, put the genie back in the bottle and now you're suddenly dealing with this environment. And so happy for the, the guidelines to be out there, happy for the transparency and, and the dialogue. We were offered a lot of dialogue, so I have nothing but respect for the process you know, that we were engaged in, but I do think um, that it's, it's, there's significant uncertainty in how they're applied and that's gonna continue to, to have an impact on the ability to, to complete deals. Mm -hmm. Rima, you referenced earlier, I think, and probably looking ahead to other deals in the mm -hmm. future, um, that the strategy, given mm -hmm. that you have to clear multiple, for global companies doing global mm -hmm. deals, you've got to clear and kind of run the table, mm -hmm. right? Really impacts the strategy that mm -hmm. you might pursue. I mm -hmm. wonder if you could speak more about that and maybe lessons learned from, from your mm -hmm. experience. So many lessons learned. <laughs> we could spend Should a day. Should we just do a panel on that? <laughs> we could spend a day on lessons learned. Um, I, you know, one of the things that I found really fascinating, at least just for us, that I was um, perhaps naive and, um, and um, hadn't thought through enough was just the divergence in approach to remedy and what the tolerance was and the willingness of different agencies to entertain different types of remedies and really the difference between, you know, and, and you heard the commissioner, you know, sort of talk about where they have, you know, sort of the ability to do a targeted and what they believe an effective remedy. They will adopt something that is more behavioral in nature. The CMA has a different approach. You know, they are much more on the structural side. And so behavioral remedies are not something that they're interested in, in pursuing. And the FTC is probably even farther out um, with respect to that. And so as I, you know, kind of thinking back, you know, I, I think at some level we were probably fairly enamored with our facts. Um, we thought we had a very pro-competitive merger and so didn't give a lot of thought to remedies at the outset. And you know, if I had to do it again, I would say maybe starting with the remedies and starting to think about and take very seriously the positions that these agencies have very clearly articulated. I mean, it's not like they're hiding it. But, um, and really kind of start there and try to get creative up front about with the business about what can we tolerate as a potential remedy in this space? How can we get creative in this space? Is that something we can live with before we green light 
a merger. Um, so that sort of yeah. one of my one of my takeaways. So um, considering, totally echo yeah, that. And I, I love what you said about being enamored of our facts. I'd look <laughs> back. I do think <laughs> we fell in the same trap a bit. And I, you know, future discussions. Or first thing I think about now is yeah. uh, go to the business, start thinking creatively immediately, yeah. and thinking about model, putting that into our model and and those sorts of factors. So thinking about remedies much earlier in the process, probably as part of the deal analysis. And okay, if all things go wrong. Right in our review, have we built in a you know plan B, plan C, whatever it is, for the remedy? Um, so, uh, would that change your strategy in terms of when to? I mean, I guess there's a formal pro the process is different in different places. So about sort of when to consider that remedy, or uh, people talk about these days, you know, fixing it first, fixing it before you get yourself into into the deal. Has have you guys ever thought through that part? I I mean. If you can fix it before you get into the deal, that is the, I think the, <laughs> the best scenario you want to be in. You don't always have that yeah. opportunity to do that. Um, I do think that it's important to engage, 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 and engage some more with the regulators um, at the very beginning. Some processes are better suited for that, um, and in this sense, I would definitely give you know a shout out to the EC on this. Mm -hmm. I felt like throughout, whether we disagreed with them or not, they were very transparent in their thinking um, and very willing to kind of start engaging on remedies as early as kind of the phase one discussions and being able to kind of carry that forward in parallel with discussions about the substance. Um, I think you will see in other agencies that it's a, sometimes a lot more serial yeah. um, in their approach. Uh, and that can leave you at the end of the day with not a lot of time um, and not a lot of ability to kind of coordinate what your remedy is because if you're dealing with multiple regulators, perhaps you're too far down the line now with some other regulator and so how do you then bring, bring those two together? Um, so I, you know, just early engagement um, and if you can obviously fix it before you even get into the merger, that would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. So can I turn to Anjali? Uh, do you have reflections, including you know, hearing what the other panelists say about uh, you know, the next merger that involves multiple agencies uh, with potentially different approaches? What's the right way strategically to, to, to approach that? Yeah, and Vijay, Rima, thank you so much for, for, for sharing those stories. They're, they're so interesting to hear. And I, I think that it underscores kind of what I was thinking too, which is it, when you, especially when you've got multiple jurisdictions in play, and then as we'll get into in the next section, when you've got other regulatory reviews such as FDI, it's so important to, to, to think through all of the different potential um, uh, strategies and, and, and aspects as, as early as possible. I think one of those steps is also, I think, that you know, it's one of the first things we, we would typically do, right, is figuring out which jurisdictions are important. Even that in and of itself, greatly informed strategy. Um, but I, I, I think it was so so interesting to, to hear you both. I, I, I think that really does um, you know, underscore for me that it's, it's, it's just extremely important to start figuring that process out early. You know, as in-house counsel, we're uniquely positioned to get early access to information. And so um, you know, we can really help inform that process you know, from the beginning and, and, and from the early days. And so um, I think that, that, that that's a, a really critical aspect to the, the, the deal process. Great. 
Can we wrap this uh, session up just with one maybe slightly provocative final question, which is... You mean the, the section of the session? The right? section of the session. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, um, so that's the following issue, which is, um, you know, I, I think in some of these global mergers, we hear the companies essentially complaining, the, you know, the agencies are talking to each other, they're talking to each other too much, there's a huge volume of calls between the agencies, is this kind of them uh, in some form of exercise of acting strategically and colluding to frustrate the merger? But equally, you could imagine a world in which the agencies didn't speak to each other. The, the merging parties might have a complaint and say, this is ridiculous. You know, the agencies are, are not speaking to each other. We, we need them to be talking in order to be you know, converging and reaching the same kind of conclusions. So where are you on, the, uh, you know, on, this, on this issue about inter-agency communication and whether you, uh, you, know, w whether you think uh, you know, uh, you know is, is there kind of good communication, bad communication, thinking about your own cases? Are you happy with the way that, that side of the case went? Well, I would say you're always happy when it works to your favor and unhappy when it doesn't. It's <laughs> um, partly, <laughs> partly what the question was getting at. Yeah. It's a trick question. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I ultimately, we always end up granting waivers um, and enabling agencies to talk to each other because I think at the end of the day, you know, to be realistic, you do need them to talk to each other. They should be able to talk to each other. It's much more efficient for everybody. It does ultimately benefit the entire process, I think, at the end of the day. Um, but of course, at any given moment, you may be happy or frustrated by it. Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that was interesting that happened during the course of both, both of our deals was that I, I recall that uh, Executive Vice President Commissioner tried to appoint an American economist, I think, mm -hmm. it, at the EC, and that was something that within the EC that was sort of objected to and I think sort of stood down. And it was, I was of a mind that I thought this was a good thing, mm -hmm. that generally like it was just sort of enshrining that what we know is going on. They talk and they should have different perspectives about things. So I, I thought that was curious because, you know, Internally in the EC, it seemed like that that was sort of like not within the remit of what they wanted uh, ultimately the member states wanted but if, if you ask me what is like a the utopia it would be that the agencies should talk and align on policies and procedures and have like hey look this is these are the guidelines and this is how we intend to apply them and then they should conduct their own market specific assessments based on those policies and procedures but not talk and specifically about a case and say what do you like those incentives you talked about like this mm -hmm smoke-filled room thing of like, well, what are you doing and what should I do or strategically should we maneuver it this way with this particular deal? That would be preferable if that didn't happen. If instead we were given sort of the rules of the road and there, you know, there's the rules for California and there's the rules for UK and that's the rules for this. And we know going in like this is what will be applied and then at that point it would be preferable to me if they weren't picking up the phone and, and hobnobbing over what to do or what you might be able to extract and what I might be able to do because that seems less about application of the laws and regulations and more about like horse trading and something you know, outside of what we have ability to expect and anticipate. I think I'm gonna shift us to um, what Anjali alluded to before, that there are other regulatory regimes that come into play and increasingly <coughs> so. Um, we've seen um, dozens of foreign direct investment um, regimes come in in Europe. We have um, 
currently the CFIUS uh, rules are being revised, I think. And there's some rumor that there's gonna be outbound investment restrictions with respect to certain industries in certain countries um, coming out of the US. And that's a TBD on what those will look like if they come to fruition. But all of this, I think, presents a whole additional issue for transactions. Um, and I think we had a question from the audience in a prior, in a prior panel or, or maybe to the keynote about you know, how, do you under, how do you think about security policy, industrial policy, and competition policy. So I don't think we can ignore the fact that all of these are issues that in-house counsel, frankly, have to deal with and, and, and enforcers on the other side of things also are dealing with. Anjali, I want to go to you and, and ask about your experience in this area, particularly around foreign direct investment regimes and how you're counseling your, your internal client about it and how you think that people need to be taking this into account. Yeah, um, thanks, Lee. You know, I, I think you said something that is, is spot on, which is you know, historically, maybe traditionally, this was thought of as more of a, you know, perhaps a, a security concern. But what we've seen is that this has really developed and, and different um, industries are, are being swept up into FBI reviews. You've got media, you've got news, you've got um, infrastructure, you've got you know, agriculture. I think you know, strategic or critical um, focuses for a particular jurisdiction that might be then brought into an, an FDI review. And I think all of this has just really served to denote that the FDI is it's very real and very important. I think it's, it's you know, a, a critical piece of that early assessment that we've been talking about. So, you know, when, as in how, as, as in house counsel, we're, we're considering a potential deal, you know, when we sit down and say, okay, what are the potential jurisdictions that are going to be implemented from a merger control process? I would do the same thing from an FDI process as well and, and, and really look carefully at what jurisdictions um, might be implicated. And I, I think having outside counsel that has experience with FBI and, and you know, connections with local counsel that, that also have um, you know, ties to each particular jurisdiction is, is, is really, really important. I think um, you know, a couple of things that I would note is that in, in many cases, FDI is always trickier to, uh, not trickier than ever, but you know, FDI is, um, has more considerations with FDI in the sense that you know, with merger control, often you've got size thresholds or, or revenue thresholds that, that need to be met. But for, for FDI, often it can be just the deal itself that triggers the FDI requirement. And I think I've seen in many jurisdictions where FDI itself is a bar to closing, right? So it's, it's a very real and important component of the, the regulatory review process. Um, additionally, a lot of these FDI regimes are, are, are newer and, and still developing. And so processes are less defined timelines are less certain, um, you know, to, to, to the point that we've all been discussing on this panel earlier, that injects uncertainty into deals, that can inject um, uh, a, a lot of just uncertainty into the, the, the timing of a deal, which is, is critical as you're, you're, you're trying to think through a deal process. Um, so I, I really think you need to take into account all of that as part of a comprehensive regulatory review strategy when you're assessing a deal. Um, in the early stages. Um, and, and I think outside counsel is also important. Thank you. Um, and then maybe a second question related to FDI. So we talked about impacts potentially on innovation from increased merger enforcement um, or, or um, from prohibitions of deals. I'm curious to know if anyone has a thought on whether 
the increase in FDI regimes can actually stifle investment in innovation and research and things of that nature? More of like a policy question. This is a wild card if anyone wants to take it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure. It's not been measured, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it, it, here's another one <laughs> um, I mean, But I, I do think, you know, certainly from our perspective in the world that I live in, as we start to think about, you know, semiconductors, AI, um, these technologies that are increasingly getting kind of intertwined with geopolitics, with na issues of national security, um, you know, it, as you think about what is your model of competition, what are you as a regulator um, thinking the world is going, what's your counterfactual? What do you think the world is gonna be? Who's gonna come in and enter? These considerations of industrial policy, of um, the geopolitics of who is allowed to even invest and participate, constrain and create some boundaries around your market that I think you have to be thinking about I don't know, uh, it, it's, it's newer to me and I'm not sure how we kind of systematically kind of include it and incorporate it into the analysis um, of, of competition. And yeah, to me it's, many of these things are not well measured. What is quite clear to me is I, I think the agencies are operating not too far away from a presumption that not much, not too much is lost by, by incorrectly blocking a merger. Mm -hmm. and. You know, I think it's quite dangerous, it's increased, it, if you go back five or 10 years, it was quite standard to go in and try to defend a merger on the basis, or at least give a pro-competitive rationale on the basis that it involved complementarities and efficiencies, it even enhanced an ecosystem. Now, even mentioning a complementarity is quite dangerous because your efficiency very quickly pivots into being a theory of harm, which is essentially is you know, sort of your experience. So, um, but again, I would go back to what I said earlier. So many of these things are not measured and it seems that policy kind of evolves a little bit driven by um, yeah, a, a kind of a zeitgeist uh, rather than being entirely, you know, rather than being fundamentally driven by, by kind of measuring well the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. Should we first go and see if there are any questions? Hi, Cecile from TIG. Um, I want to ask, it, it, it seems from the enforcer's perspective that they are putting out the word that platforms writ large, like that's the issue, and that's what they're going to be going after, and they're um, leaving some other things behind. Is that a fair assessment of what you're seeing from in the in-house perspective? Our business is primarily a platform. You guys <laughs> right. have a broader a business. A lot of platforms. Than a, yeah, yeah. The different ones. I mean, I, I can only speak to our experience, but it, there is a focus on platforms that there wasn't, you know, maybe before. I mean, you know, we don't operate hotels. We don't fly planes. We, we just are a two-sided marketplace here. And I, and I think, in the broader arc of just calling something digitization, as was sort of mentioned earlier this morning, I mean, I think that's that's where a, 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 an enormous focus has been directed now and on things that maybe not even necessarily able to be seen, but sort of a feeling that maybe if you know you allow 
data to be bought, you know, somebody to acquire a set of customer data or to like acquire something that's comp potentially complementary or next door to you, that di digitally we could do something that you couldn't do if you just bought the factory next door. There's a lot of challenges with that, but digitally maybe it's a lot easier and you can multi your multiplier effects are a lot higher. That's at least seems to be a theory that's being pushed. The one thing that I would, just to add on to that, I mean, as we think about platforms, you also hear the word gatekeeper used a lot. And, and I don't know that there's a one-to-one -one with those or that the dynamics for every platform are the same, that they uh, have that same kind of gatekeeper control, or at least as I kind of understand that in the sense that there is, you know, sort of very strong network effects. There is an ability to aggregate kind of supply on, you know, on one side of the platform because you've got all the users. Um, that confers a particular type of power as opposed to, you know, we've had platforms for a long time on which large ecosystems are built and which the value of that ecosystem is actually captured more and is, is you know, a platform is successful if that is all happening up at the, you know, whether it's the application layer or kind of the, the layer above the platform. That is a net positive, I think, in many ways. It's a different set of dynamics than perhaps you might have in more of a two-sided kind of platform where that the platform is actually playing maybe more of a matchmaker kind of role. Um, and so as, as, as agencies continue to kind of think through the issues around platforms and ecosystems, I think it's incredibly important that they are paying attention to the different dynamics in the different markets, um, the role the platform is playing, who the customers are, who the suppliers are, what ability do they have to go around the platform to meet each other. All of those things, I think, make a difference. Um, and so hopefully we don't brush with you know, too broad of a brush as we think about platforms. Yep, question. Hi, uh, Aditi, this is Peter Marchetti. I've got a question for you about efficiencies. Uh, and that is, I think many people feel that like the agencies are especially skeptical of efficiencies these days. And I wanted to get your take is that true, or what are the kinds of efficiencies that, that the antitrust division is willing to credit? What kind of arguments and evidence help convince the antitrust division that there are real efficiencies to a transaction? Um, so I, I think that the, the types of arguments that are going to be the most powerful are just the ones that are most grounded in market reality. So I think it's you know coming in and saying something or showing something that was created post um, after you, as you're working through the deal as, as you're working on the deal is not going to be credited as much as sort of just things that that clearly match what's going on in the market and are thinking about facts and how the market is working. So I think that's that's always been true and I think that that continues to be true. I think the guidelines do lay out some arguments um, on, on factors that would have that have um, affect the analysis. So I think, um, you know, we still think about what's motivating the deal, what we think the effect of the deal would be, and that's taking into account potential efficiencies and, and other benefits. Okay. Well, I think it's time. I think yeah. we should wrap up and thank you to all the panelists who joined us today, both in person and remotely. We so appreciate everyone being with us and your candid comments. Thank you very much.
you listened to an episode of Antitrust Code by Concurrences. If you want to read more about this topic, check the Concurrences website, where you can find all relevant articles. Follow us on Twitter, at Competition Loss, and join the Concurrences group on LinkedIn to receive updates on our next podcast.